Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Um, and um, I'm delighted to see so many of you uh, turn up for what promises to be a very interesting discussion of a very relevant and timely subject uh, pertaining to uh, the happenings in uh, Europe in general and uh, Eurozone in particular. Uh, to most of the people in the audience, uh, the story of the European Union uh, will be well known uh, from humble beginnings uh, as the coal and steel community in 1951 uh, through the European Economic Community, um, through the European Union to the single currency. The European continent seemed to be moving inexorably uh, toward an ever closer union that the European uh, founding documents talk about. For much of that time, Europe was a synonym for stability and prosperity. When the Berlin Wall collapsed, many of the communist countries rushed to join the EU. A, 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 a political entity uh, that seemed to banish civil strife, uh, as well as provide for very high standards of living and high degree of social protection at the same time. Today, civil discord has returned to many European capitals. Economic growth has steadily declined from some 4% in the 1970s to around 1% in uh, the 2000s. The social welfare state is under growing pressure literally everywhere. And uh, nobody seriously suggests, as uh, many people have done uh, only five years ago, that uh, the European version of uh, social capitalism is something to be emulated. On top of that comes the struggle for the survival of the euro, the common currency. As Europe searches for solutions, two competing narratives have emerged to, um, to explain what went wrong and to explain how to return Europe on the right track. On the one hand are those who say that European integration has gone too far and that it has happened too fast, that much of the centralization of power in Brussels has lacked democratic accountability or democratic legitimacy, that Brussels in, is not necessarily better at addressing many of the pressing problems, and that some powers should be returned to the nation state. On the other hand are those who believe that many of the current problems, most specifically the problems surrounding the euro, are a result of not enough integration. That an economic government of Europe should be the next step toward unity. Well, today we will hopefully hear from both camps. But to start us off, I will now turn not to European, but to an American, a prolific writer, an avid traveler, my colleague Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He specializes in foreign policy and civil liberties. He's worked as special assistant to President Reagan, and he was the editor of political magazine Inquiry. He has written for Fortune Magazine, National Interest, Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, and so on. And he also speaks frequently at academic conferences on college campuses and to business groups. He's appeared on ABC, CBC, NBC, Fox News, MSNBC even, 
how, how did you get in? Uh, <laughs> and um, um, he's, of course, uh, an author of a number of books uh, and articles, uh, many of which can be found on the Cato website. So with that, uh, please help me welcome Doug Bandau. Well, thank you, Marion. It's a great pleasure to be here. This is a certainly an appropriate time to talk about the future of Europe and in many ways to ask the question, whether Europe? <laughs> Very early this morning, the heads of the Eurozone countries agreed to a 130 billion euro bailout, the second bailout for Greece. And the real question, I suppose, is does anyone believe that it will work? The Financial Times this morning, its lead story, uh, reported a strictly confidential report on Greece's debt projections prepared for Eurozone finance ministers reveals Athens' rescue program is way off track and suggests the Greek government may need another bailout <coughs> once the second rescue, set to be agreed last night, runs out. The 10-page debt sustainability analysis distributed to Eurozone officials last week but obtained by the Financial Times last night found that even under the most optimistic scenario, the austerity measures being imposed on Athens' risk of recession so deep that Greece will not be able to climb out of the debt hole over the course of the new three-year $170 billion uh, bailout. The question then is, whither Europe? Where is Europe going? Two years ago, the Lisbon Treaty created a stronger, more powerful European Union with a president and a foreign minister. In some sense, it seemed the continent had answered Henry Kissinger's derisive question, what is the phone number for Europe? But today, it's not clear who answers the phone if the phone rings. Europe's the most important economic aggregation in the world. The continent hosts several of the world's most venerable democracies. Europe's historical and cultural ties circle the globe. But the EU, these days at least, has not uh, lived up to the lofty ambitions of many of the people who dominate continental politics today. Europe remains a geographic conglomeration much more than a political Euro unit in the most basic sense. And while the common economic market remains huge, the continent isn't functioning very well in economic terms these days. Indeed, there are concerns that uh, far from opening up markets, now regulations and controls actually are more likely to promote redistribution, in many ways I think the objective of old Europe, as it has been called, rather than economic growth, which is probably more important to new Europe, as some call it. Moreover, there is no effective co common foreign policy, let alone a unified military. Most European politicians advocate further political consolidation in Brussels, but they disagree on specifics. <laughs> in contrast, the European public seems increasingly skeptical of what the European project has become. But of course, the Euro EU's immediate challenge is preserving what unity it has achieved, most notably the Eurozone. Greece is moving towards a second bailout, but violent protests have engulfed that uh, country. In Athens, uh, you know, I would not want to stay in Constitution Square. I've actually stayed at a couple of hotels there, but these are not good times to be there, since all the demonstrations occur right outside of the Parliament you know, building. And uh, private creditors continue to resist accepting a de facto default by Greece. Official creditors don't want to take losses. And while European Union negotiators finally approved the agreement early this morning, the question remains, will it work? The group Open Europe, a London-based organization skeptical of many of the EU uh, activities, raised 10 questions about uh, the question of the agreement. Will the Greek center hold, it asked? Are Greek government commitments credible? Uh, how will the Eurozone fund the money needed for the restructuring? 
Will the uh, European Central Bank participate uh, to the degree necessary? How many private bondholders are still holding out? A number of questions which raise very significant issues in terms of sustainability and effectiveness of this agreement. No wonder then that there's official pessimism that in fact this agreement is going to work. In fact, one finds analysts at least privately increasingly believing that an official Greek default is inevitable. The only question then is whether Athens can default and stay within the Eurozone and one gets the sense that increasingly some uh, of uh, Greece's neighbors really don't care what the answer is. They want to get by the immediate crisis and they really don't worry so much about the ultimate disposition of Greece. Moreover, it's not clear it's going to be possible to contain the crisis. Moody's recently downgraded Portugal, which many fear is heading towards a Greek-style crash. The agency reduced ratings for Spain and Italy as well and cut the outlook for France and Great Britain. A number of countries in Europe face extraordinary pressure merely making their normal borrowings, let alone financing, yet another bailout of, of their own countries that are in trouble. And help is not likely to come from overseas. There had been hope that the bailout fund could be funded by foreign nations and private investors, including China, but no one is very uh, you know, enthusiastic about potentially throwing good money after bad investments already. International Monetary Fund is not playing as big a role as some had hoped because people worry about overexposure there. And the United States is not likely to come up with any money, at least directly. Already it's entered the election campaign with re Republicans targeting the IMF and whether American money is going to be going to bail out those improvident Euro Europeans. But I think more fundamentally, many of the folks committed to the European project in a more unified continent fear the impact of a Eurozone collapse on the EU. If the Eurozone shrinks or it worse collapses, expansion of the EU seems likely to halt and it's hard to imagine an expansion of EU authority. The idea of a European nation state or something akin to that would likely be moribund if not formally buried. Of course, this project, as Marion indicated, has been going on for a number of years. It took on much greater urgency after World War II as an attempt to bind Germany to the continent. But political unification always trailed behind economic unification. So there really was, the Eurozone could be viewed in many ways as an indirect approach. Adopt a common monetary policy without a common budget policy and expect economic policy ultimately would follow. Ch German Chancellor Angela Merkel explains we must overcome the architectural flaws that work their way into the economic and monetary union in its formation. But then, what does this mean for traditional notions of sovereignty and democracy? The Lisbon Treaty became as a, a continental constitution to expand Brussels' authority and reduce national independence, but both the Dutch and the French voted no. So the, the constitution was relaunched as a treaty because treaties don't have to be approved by European voters. Only in the country of Ireland, where the constitution requires a vote, did the voters have a chance to say, and they said no. So, of course, the European Union demanded a second vote to get the answer that it wanted. At that point, two years ago, European officialdom celebrated the new EU with the stronger powers and a new president and, prime, er, and foreign minister. Nevertheless, the uh, officials chose two indistinguishable and, frankly, rather undistinguished politicians for the new positions of president and foreign minister. And then the Eurozone crisis exploded. This common currency had yoked together relatively efficient northern European countries with congenitally improvident and Mediterranean states and the loss of competitiveness plus extraordinary borrowing led to crisis. 
Greece has led that parade, but other countries are coming up. Now, the response over the last two years has always been the same. Herman Van Rumpy, European Council President, explained that if there's a new problem, we'll do more. And doing more, of course, meant borrowing more. Open Europe has termed the EU a de facto debt union. It's also become a de facto transfer union. But that, of course, is straining the ties among countries. Daniel Hannan, a British member of the European Parliament and skeptic of the European project, has noted it doesn't strike EU leaders as eccentric to address a debt crisis with more debt. But most important, doing more means Germany doing more. You know, that Germany is the wealthiest country, it's expected to give and constantly give. Chancellor Merkel has supported every new cash infusion. Nevertheless, she's resisted the idea of euro bonds and also rejected proposals to transform the European Central Bank into a government of last resort. For these, this refusal to accept these measures, Germany has been assailed as being selfish, having lost solidarity, of losing sight of the European common good, that it was exhibiting narrow and self-defeating definition of national interests, and that it was impeding all avenues for a solution all because Berlin, with still strong memories of hyperinflation and monetary collapse in Weimar, Germany, refuses to turn control of its finances over to Brussels. Nevertheless, so far at least, Germany has remained willing to pay to save the Eurozone, but it wants control over national budgets. The Lisbon Treaty expanded continental authority at the price of national sovereignty. Nevertheless, the extension of that power remains somewhat unclear. The FT reported this morning the European Union finance ministers are tomorrow expected to approve rules that would force Eurozone members to submit their annual tax and spending plans to Brussels for review before they are approved by national parliaments. This is a measure criticized by and strongly resisted by the British, you know, the fount of parliamentary democracy, the notion of turning over one's budget and tax decisions to an entity across the channel is not something which one can imagine the British accepting very well. But uh, <coughs> Chancellor Merkel and French President Nicolas Sarkozy are pushing for more fundamental change, treaty changes. They disagree in some areas. Nevertheless, said Merkel, we have a common currency, but no common political and economic union, and this is exactly what must change. The question then is what becomes of sovereignty and democracy? Great Britain has already resisted any new treaty. Other countries have their own questions raised. And it's not clear that even changes like this will save Greece. Default is a reality, whether it's officially recognized or tactfully disguised. Athens has yet to implement past promises. A new government is going to be elected in April. And the opposition leader, who is likely to become the next prime minister, has suggested that perhaps some renegotiation might be necessary, something, something which Eurozone leaders say is absolutely impossible. And increasingly, some people are willing to risk the Eurozone. Former Dutch EU Commissioner Fritz Bolkestein argued that separation is unavoidable since we constructed something that does not work in the long term. Now, departure from the Eurozone for the Greeks would be extraordinarily <coughs> painful. Nevertheless, it might be the only way for them to become competitive yet again. And that is something which is likely to weigh increasingly on people who are in the midst of the fifth year of recession, an economy that has shrunk 14% in recent years. And Greece could be joined by other struggling states, or perhaps at some point Germany, France, and others might give an unpleasant shove to their neighbors to leave. But again, it raises the question of what happens to the EU. The European project always has moved upward and outward. It's never retreated. Chancellor Angela Merkel worried if the, Eurozone, if the Euro fails, it's not just the currency that fails, but Europe 
and the idea of European unification. Nevertheless, the question is how healthy is that dream today? Some might call it a fantasy. The uh, seemingly premature entry of Bulgaria and Romania and prospective membership of Turkey clearly has diminished enthusiasm on the continent for continued expansion of the, Euro, of the EU. And polls indicated that the Lisbon Treaty <laughs> would have been rejected by half of the nations if the publics had been able to vote on it. And now, continuing bailouts, essentially, of the spendthrift by the thrifty have inflamed Euroscepticism, even in countries like Germany, which have long been committed to the ideal of the European project. Charles Kupchin of the Council on Foreign Relations here argued that instead of delivering affluence, the EU now delivers austerity and pain, and that is not a selling point for new countries and new entrants. The European Union has built a continental government, but not a continental nation state. Europe has a capital, a president, a flag, but no citizens. No European that I'm aware of feels allegiance to Brussels, Herman van Rompuy, or the EU symbol. It's hard to imagine a European wanting to die for the EU, even if there was an EU military. <laughs> Czech President Václav Klaus has spoken of the EU's democratic deficit that uh, you know, to implement the Lisbon Treaty required preventing as many people as possible from voting on it. Uh, finance minister, German finance minister Wolfgang Schauble, who I rather like because he's very blunt in his opinions, complained at the, for, after the first vote against the uh, Lisbon Treaty, said it's outrageous that five million Irish could determine the outcome for 500 million Europeans. But of course, what he meant was not too few people were voting, but too many people were voting. Were voting. What he wanted was a few thousand people to determine the outcome for 500 million Europeans, the people in the nation's capitals to approve the treaty and come up with changes without having to consult their peoples. Now, one can argue, of course, that uh, there is democratic accountability through the approval process of treaties. Andrew Morovsik has argued that if you judge by prevailing standards and existing advanced industrial democracies, the EU is democratically legitimate. Its institutions are tightly constrained by constitutional checks and balances, narrow mandates, fiscal limits, supermajoritarian, and concurrent voting requirements. And that's true, but it misses the more fundamental point, which is there is no electoral contest within the EU over the direction of EU policy. Indeed, the elected branch, the European Parliament, most often voting seems to follow domestic rather than continental politics and policy. One typically votes for MEPs based upon one's views of the ruling party within one's own country as opposed to votes for MEPs based upon changes within the Lis whether it be Lisbon Treaty, the Eurozone, or something else. But that lack of accountability is a problem there. And especially if one looks at proposals for change for the future, what we see today is a determination to try to reduce democratic accountability even further. Wolfgang Schauble, finance minister of Germany, actually proposed that Greece, as a condition of receiving its bailout, postpone upcoming elections in April. Now, this is extraordinary. It's one thing to want to condition money given based on economic policy. It's quite another thing to say that, in fact, a democratic government should not go to the people to get their view on fundamental economic policy choices being made. If this is what the Eurozone has become, what does this mean for democracy and sovereignty within the European Union? And this is an issue not just for Greece, but for others. The German Constitutional Court President, Andreas Voskule, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, gave a speech and he stressed the right of the Bundestag to control the budget as a central element of democracy, 
Elected representatives must also, in a system of intergovernmental governance, retain the ability to keep control of fundamental budgetary decisions. Now, we were talking uh, before coming on stage that the EU has become a matter of American presidential politics. And, uh, you know, it, of course, it come, becomes a, a matter of presidential politics in very strange way at times. But I think it's very dangerous for Americans to have a feeling of schadenfreude when they look at the European Union. Americans should remember their debt burden, which actually exceeds that of the Europe, Europe as a whole. And uh, America has its Greece and Portugal. Their names are Illinois and California. That, of course, does not stop American officials from lecturing Europeans. Treasury Secretary Geithner showed up at European finance ministers' meeting to explain to them how they should resolve their debt problems. This is a man who last weekend explained, when asked about the new budget, yeah, we don't have a solution to the debt problem. I think perhaps American officials should exhibit a little more humility when they wade into these issues. Nevertheless, Europe, you know, the US has the advantage of being a nation state in reality. The EU remains in many ways a fragile nation state wannabe. And that creates enormous problems for proceeding with the European project. Europe is going to survive, which is good, <laughs> because Europe is important. And whatever the fate of the Eurozone, Europe will survive. But the objective of Europe acting alongside the US and China as an equivalent to, in many ways, set global rules appears to be dead, at least in the near term. Europe's going to remain a collection of normal countries rather than a new nation state. And frankly, that may be best for the European people. Thank you. Thank you, Doug, for, for, for those wonderful remarks and also for uh, putting things in perspective. Um, certainly, the troubles in the Eurozone uh, should not uh, in any way um, undermine the importance of the, of the fiscal problems uh, that we are experiencing here in the United States. Our next speaker is um, uh, a member of parliament, um, a member of Slovak parliament. Um, he was the uh, he's the he's the father of the Slovak uh, flat tax uh, system of a few years back. He then formed his own political party, Freedom and Solidarity, and uh, a party which uh, which he then took to Parliament with about twelve percent of the vote and became the speaker in a centre right uh, coalition. Uh, after about a year and a half in office, uh, he. Uh, was removed uh, from, from that position after he and his party voted against uh, the Greek loan. Uh, this was a few months ago, three or four months ago. Um, Richard, um, aside from being, uh, from being an economist um, and an avid squash player, um, is, um, um, has, has brought uh, to Slovakia a, a new air of uh, uh, of a rather liberal liberal thinking, which was previously um, not um, not very much or widely spread in that particular country, um, he was uh, born in Slovakia, but actually spent much of his uh, uh, much of his youth, his formative years, in Germany and speaks uh, fluent German. He has studied economics both in Germany and then in Slovakia. He has advised the finance ministry on two um, occasions and uh, has also uh, been a very successful uh, private entrepreneur. Uh, he will talk today about uh, what went on uh, with respect to uh, the loan for Greece um, in Slovakia, uh, 
about the reasons why he opposed um, that loan and uh, give us his thoughts on the future of the common currency. With that, please help me welcome Richard Sulik. Thank you very much, Marian. So I am <clears throat> coming from Slovakia. It's the east part of former Czechoslovakia. 20 years ago, our country divided. And uh, also Marian is coming from this very small country. Uh, we have only 5 million inhabitants. It's a big city in USA. So in East Europe, it is a world country. So <clears throat> thank you very much for the invitation and for the opportunity to address you today. Um, allow me a short view on the history of, uh, of uh, euro, of the common currency. In order for the European common currency to function in many countries, especially those that are economically quite different, it was necessary to establish certain rules. Unfortunately, politicians are generally irresponsible, and the rules concerning the euro were not followed. Moreover, the breaching of those rules was never punished. The rule prohibiting countries which a public debt larger than 60% of GDP from entering the eurozone was ignored from beginning. Greece and Italy entered the eurozone anyway. At that time, the public debt of Italy was 105% and Greece 92%. In the first 10 years of single currency, the Maastricht, cri the Maastricht criteria were broken 97 times, but no country was punished. In 2004, Germany and France publicly declared that they will now follow the Maastricht criteri criteria. In the following years, many countries have fallen more in debt. Much of the borrowed money artificially stimulated consumption, not least government consumption, otherwise known as vote buying. It means that uh, politicians tell to the voters, if you elect us, we will increase your pensions and give you free healthcare and free internet. Such promises sound very attractive and bring in the votes. What politicians do not say is that all this free stuff will be paid by new debts. Vote buying is one of the most important shortcomings of the democratic system. After years of ignoring the Maastricht, the Maastricht uh, criteria, Greece was the first country to get into financial problems as the financial markets refused to lend the Greeks more money. Under normal conditions, a heavily indebted country that has lost the confidence of the financial markets would be obliged to save or to declare bankruptcy. Not so with Greece. When the trouble started, the, the European politicians and European Central Bank have declared their intention to save Greece. At first, they claimed that the Greece, Greeks could pay their conditor, uh, creditors without a need for foreign aid. Later, they extended the Greeks a loan of 110 billion euros, in spite of a high probability that Greece would not be able to pay this money back. 
today we are already discussing a second loan. Yesterday uh, it was 130 billion euros and additionally 15 billion euros will come later. If the first loan was nonsensical because Greece was on the way to bankruptcy, the second loan is doubly nonsensical because Greece is already bankrupt. Put differently, helping the Greek state is a waste of taxpayers' money. It soon became clear that other highly indebted countries like Portugal, Spain and Italy needed help. So what did the brilliant politicians in, in Brussels come up with? They came up with the European Financial St Stability Facility or EFSF, which is supposed to rescue financially irresponsible countries in the Eurozone with money from financially responsible members of the Eurozone. In 2010, Ms. Merkel gave an ironclad promise that the European bailout mechanism would be temporary, last only three years and exclusively consist of long guarantees. Now we know that in addition to the temporary bailout mechanism, we will have a permanent one. We have also learned that the ECB is supplying commercial banks with unlimited loans at an interest of 1% <clears throat> and that is buying sovereign bonds of most heavily indebted Eurozone member states. So far, the ECB has done that in the secondary markets, but after the permanent bailout mechanism becomes low, the ECB will be able to buy sovereign bonds in the primary markets. The Euro European politicians have created a de facto transfer union, the exact opposite of what the Eurozone was intended to be. In the meantime, our politicians are lying to us by insisting that all that is happening, all that is happening is a rescue of common currency. But it's not true. All the above contradicts the understanding reached before the approval of the temporary bailout mechanism. It's in contra contradiction of the Lisbon Treaty and in contradiction of the rules governing the ECB. I believe that the failure to follow the rules and the subsequent loss of credibility is a serious transgression on the part of the European political, political elite. The sums involved are very high, yet the national parliaments of the Eurozone countries, which are mandated by law and uh, by the electorate to oversee national budgets, are abrogating that responsibility to unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. That goes against the very essence of democracy. Consider also the moral hazard associated with the creation of the permanent bailout mechanism. First, the Eurozone members will no longer have to convince the financial markets that they are credible borrowers. Second, interests will fall to a uniform level of 3.5% for all borrowing countries. Third, countries that receive a loan will no longer need to extend financial guarantees to other Eurozone members. It means European bureaucrats have developed a system 
that will encourage countries to borrow as much as possible. We try to self to sorry we try to solve the debt crisis with new and new debts. Europe is like a heroin addict who thinks that he can solve his addiction by increasing the daily intake of heroin. I have no doubt that the bailout will make the euro crisis worse. Let also not forget the responsibility of the creditors. For decades, French and German banks that lent to the Greek state enjoyed higher returns on investment. They did not share those profits with anyone. In other words, the gains were private. Now that the French and German banks are facing a possible Greek default, their losses are being socialized. All the while, we are being deceived with the false concept of European solidarity. Inability to pay off excessive debts caused by overborrowing and overspending is not the same as an economic emergency caused by earthquake or tsunami. Like Greece, Italy too lived beyond its means. Given the level of its debt, Italy should not have been allowed be, be, uh, sorry, Italy should not have been allowed to enter the Eurozone. Today, Italy is the second most indebted country in the Eurozone. Logic logically, it is facing higher interest rates than, for example, Germany. The purchase of the Italian debt by the ECB is an outrage. The ECB had no right to do so. The ECB's goal is to maintain price stability. That is what we were promised when the euro was created. Purchase of the Italian bonds simply because the interest rate on those bonds is increasing harms price stability in the eurozone. The only thing that can save Italy is to start saving money. Here are a few money-saving ideas. Italian members of parliament take home 15,000 euros per month and after tax, and the annual transport costs of the Italian political class amounts to 1 billion euro. It would not hurt if the Italian government sold some of the hundreds of state-owned companies or some of the 2,500 tons of gold in the Italian vaults. There was no reason why the ECB should have bought one cent of Italian bonds. Now, now, of course, there is no reason for the Italians really to save. All they have to do is to pass the begging bowl. Concluding uh, some remarks on Greece and Slovakia. First, Greece. In the last 200 years, Greece went bankrupt five times. For 90 years of those 200, Greece was unable to pay its creditors. And last year, that uh, happened, uh, happened uh, bankrupt was 1964. Then in 1981, Greece entered the European Community. That same, that same year, a socialist politician named Andreas Papandreou became the Greek prime minister. Papandreou is a big political family in Greece, so his father was also 
prime minister and his son, George, George Papandreou was the last prime minister before uh, the present one. In that year, in 1981, the Greek national debt was 27 percent, 27. The membership of the European community gave Greece more credibility to borrow and after eight years of socialist Andreas Papandreou premiership, the Greek debt rose to 90 percent of GDP from 27 to 90 in eight years. No doubt Greece would have gone bankrupt much sooner, except that the membership of the Eurozone once again increased the Greek credibility in the eyes of the financial markets and allowed the Greeks to postpone bankruptcy. In order to improve financial statistics, the Greeks employed some creative accounting, like including the proceeds from prostitution in the Greek GDP figures. By the way, the person who was chiefly responsible for this creative accounting was the former head of the Greek Central Bank, and now he is <laughs> Greek Prime Minister and responsible for fixing the mess he helped to create. His name is Lukas Papademos. In essence, Eurozone membership allowed the Greek politicians for another decade to feed the massive state administration of nearly one and a half million employees employed by the state who amount to a quarter of the working population and a massive military of 134 34 soldiers. 34,000, thanks. To have a comparison, Slovakia, uh, Greek is uh, double so big by, numbers, by number of inhabitants like Slovakia. And Slovakia has 14,000 soldiers, and Greece has 10 times more, 134. Today, the Greek wages and prices are much higher than Greek productivity. As such, the Greeks have only three options. First one, to continue the financial transfers, loans and eurofunds. It's called loans, but it's also a transfer because the loan will change to, to a present. <clears throat> like, uh, for example, the Italian do it uh, with Mezzogiorno. Mezzogiorno is south of uh, the Italy. The difference is that only the Italians are paying for the Mezzogiorno. The North Italy is uh, transferring money to South Italy. But all members of the Eurozone will pay for Greece. The second option is the reduction of wages and prices by more than 30 percent to reach the price level of Turkey or Bulgaria, which would make Greece competitive. And the third one, exit from the Eurozone and return to the drachma, the former currency of Greece. Since the first option will be sooner or later refused by the Eurozone members, Slovakia already tries to <laughs> refuse this, uh, this option, but uh, it was not uh, really successful. The second option will be refused by Greek public. Only a return to the drachma remains as a feasible option. If that happened two years ago, when the Greek crisis started, the Greeks would have been much better off. <clears throat> I am convinced that only an exit 
of the Eurozone is a really possibility for Greece. And now, <clears throat> some words to Slovakia. From the Slovak perspective, helping the Greeks is crazy. Slovakia is the poorest country in the Eurozone. Our average monthly income is 780 euros, or 1,050 euros when payroll contributions are included. Average pension is less than 400 euros per month. We have a small GDP of 70 billion euros and bring only 30% of GDP in taxes and social contributions. This is an advantage, an advantage of Slovakia, but it's, I uh, want to show it's really less money. And now we have to help Gr Greece. Average wage, in, uh, average wage in Greece is double of the Slovak wage. The average pension is three times higher, 1,200. Thanks to my party, which promised to oppose the first Greek loan at the election in 2010, Slovakia did not participate in the first Greek loan bailout. As a consequence, we have saved the Slovak taxpayers 820 million euros. But Slovak politicians have, in spite of my party's opposition, agreed to join, uh, to temporary, to join the temporary European Financial Stability Facility, EFSF. As a consequence, Slovakia has agreed to guarantee 7.7 billion euros. Moreover, Slovak politicians have agreed to join the permanent European stability is the next program, next bailout program, which will uh, be valid uh, the f in, in June of this year. As such, Slovakia will have to guarantee 5 billion euros more and transfer additionally 650 million euros up to front as cash, 650 million. All in all, Slovak politicians have agreed to guarantee 13.4 billion euros, which is 112% of the annual income of Slovak government. 112% we will pay for Greece and for other countries. Slovakia will pay, which is the poorest country in the Eurozone. And we will pay for much more rich countries. And Slovakia's share of guarantees will be the highest in the Eurozone in terms of public expenditures. We do not have in Slovakia, we do not have a highway connection between two largest cities, Bratislava and Košice. We have a substandard education and healthcare. We have the lowest wages and pensions. Yet nobody seems to care. What is important to our political elite is to appear to be good European. In conclusion, let me say that I agree that the current problem in Europe go beyond Greece. It is important to recognize that under the guise of the rescue of Euro and European government, a European government is being born. This new centrally governed Europe will have a common currency, common debts, common taxes, and in the medium term, medium term, minimal competencies at the nation state level. What is being currently contemplated in Brussels is more restrictive than the former Comecon. Comecon is an economic organization in Soviet times, 
20 years become uh, 20 years ago it was something like Brussels but not so bad <laughs> the rules under which Slovakia has joined the and um, I would like to say already today 80 percent of uh, of all laws in Slovakia are influenced by by uh, directives uh, coming from Brussels the rules under which Slovakia has joined the European Union have changed Yet the people are not being consulted, for example, by uh, a referendum. I am sorry to say that Slovakia, perhaps more so than other Eurozone countries because of the highest payments related to public expenditures, is finding itself on the road to economic enslavement. <coughs> this is not the European Union that we have signed up for. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Um, and now to have, as they say, a fair and balanced uh, discussion, um, we are going to welcome uh, a, a, a very distinguished guest from the uh, European Commission delegation uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, Dr. Antonio de la Thea holds the position of Minister Economic and Financial Affairs uh, at, the, at the delegation. He's been there since October 2009. Prior to that position, he served as Director for International Affairs in the European Commission's Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs. Between 1999 and 2004, Professor Delacea was Economic Advisor in the private office of Romano Prodi, who was then the European Commission President. He joined the European Commission in 1986, holding management positions in the EU budget and control areas, as well as in economics and finance. Before moving to the European Commission, he was a member of the uh, private office of the Spanish Secretary of State for Finance in Madrid, Madrid and held other academic positions. He's obtained his PhD in quantitative economics from Catholic University of Louvain, and uh, a first degree in economics from uh, the Barcelona Autonomous University. Since 1986, he's been Associate Professor of Applied Economics at the Basque Country University in Bilbao, Spain. Please help me welcome Dr. Antonio de la Sea. Thank you, Marian, for your introduction, and thank you for inviting us to, to be here today. I have uh, felt a slight Eurosceptic tone in the previous, uh, <laughs> in the previous uh, speeches, so I think it's, uh, it's your right and my responsibility uh, to uh, provide you with uh, some other uh, views or that uh, may, uh, may complement the ones that you have uh, just heard. Uh, the first point that uh, I would like to make is that, uh, uh, indeed, as, uh, uh, as we heard uh, by uh, Marian initially, uh, uh, Europe has brought a unprecedented successes. Uh, and uh, we, I'll go through a few of them. Uh, next, uh, uh, it is true, I mean, looking at the, uh, at the title of today's uh, uh, talk or today's event, uh, uh, well, something went wrong, and uh, something has been certainly uh, uh, cited by Mr. Vando. Uh, 
next, uh, I would like to highlight uh, very uh, quickly uh, what the EU is doing uh, to mend those, uh, those drawbacks, that, so to solve the problems that uh, were, uh, uh, that appeared in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, again, I will compliment and maybe I will not agree fully or not uh, with uh, what uh, Mr. Sulik just said. Uh, finally, I will say that uh, this, uh, this roadmap to solve the problems that have been uh, accumulating over a number of years uh, is, uh, exists already, so the roadmap uh, has been designed, uh, is feasible, and uh, it is being implemented, so that the outcome of this uh, crisis will be that uh, the uh, euro area, the euro and the EU, will come strengthened. So a crisis uh, will not be missed. A crisis are opportunities, and the opportunity is being taken uh, to really mend uh, what was still uh, to be uh, improved. So let me start br briefly with uh, uh, the uh, EU successes. Uh, so what went right uh, before we go into what went wrong? Uh, Europe has, or the uh, European Union, or the, the community first, has brought unprecedented growth and convergence. Uh, take uh, uh, GDP per capita uh, in, uh, in uh, purchasing power parities uh, in between 1994 and, 19, and 2008 in Western Europe uh, grew at, at a pace of 1.6%. In Southern Europe, 2.7%. And Eastern Europe, 4%. This against uh, an average of 1.7% in this country. Moreover, uh, Europe created a, a, a huge market and a huge uh, trade, uh, uh, trade potential. Almost half of the globe goods, uh, over half of the global goods trade involves Europe. Export of goods and services exceed the growth rates of even the heralded uh, BRIC economies. And the new member states, so the countries like Slovakia, uh, and the candidate countries engineered productivity increases that outstripped those in East Asia and Latin America. Moreover, as, uh, Roman, uh, as Marian also said, the, uh, Europe's, Europe's growth was of a multidimensional uh, kind, so it improved the quality of life in various, uh, in various ways. In, in 2008, and I'm quoting a, a World Bank report, the United States had the might and China the momentum, but Europeans had the highest standard of living. Europe invented the convergence machine, taking in poor countries, namely those in the south and the east and southeast, and helping them become high-income countries. Perhaps more than, more than others around the world, Europeans want economic growth to be smarter, kinder, and cleaner. And they are willing to accept less for better growth. Moreover, and this is very relevant in this context, European governments are, according to the World Bank, the most decentralized and representative of local interests. On top of that, the Economic and Monetary Union was a catalyst for economic and political integration, but also for, uh, for uh, economic in integration and prosperity. It brought macroeconomic and price stability, as, uh, uh, as uh, Mr. Uh, Solik said initially, it brought uh, further integration of financial and product markets. It brought capital that flowed 
from richer to poorer countries. And like globally, we see that it's that capital flows from developing countries to advanced countries, which runs against what I learned and I taught at uh, a university for quite some time. So uh, Europe is a good example where capital flows from uh, high-income countries to low-income countries, from low-growth to high-growth countries, in order to improve the, the conditions of both. Moreover, the uh, Economic and Monetary Union was a buffer against the financial crisis of 2008 and in some respects. In the absence of the Economic and Monetary Union, the exchange rate turbulences following the, the financial crisis that originated with the subprime uh, mortgages would have been likely, the, the turbulences would have been again uh, very likely among euro area countries. So this, this model worked. It uh, unpre gave unprecedented growth and convergence. It was a machine to, to create convergence from uh, low and medium income countries like Slovakia into uh, bringing them farther to the average of the European Union. So uh, the model still has potential. So unlike uh, some uh, critics that say that the European uh, model is, uh, growth model is over, uh, just quote a, a couple of them. Factory Europe, so manufacturing Europe, may not be expanding as fast as factory Asia, which much lower uh, levels of uh, development, but it has become smarter, and it could ex expand a lot too. With economic recovery and better trade facilities, regional goods trade could double over the next decade, again benefiting countries from the East and the West alike. With reforms, Europe's trade in services could triple in size over the next decade. Therefore, there is a, a big potential. And more important, productivity in the general services sector, which is about 70% of GDP in Europe, would increase. All right, this is what went right. Now, what went wrong? What went wrong is, uh, has been highlighted that uh, fiscal and current account imbalances accumulated and became unsustainable. There was excessive borrowing from both public and private, uh, in, in both public and private sectors in some countries. True, uh, fiscal policy discipline was not strong enough in good times. There were losses in competitiveness, a mismatch between wages and productivity that are now, are now being, uh, re being uh, reversed in southern countries. Uh, these were not, were not tackled early enough and accumulated over a number of years. Furthermore, the financial sector mispricing allocation, partly of which is maybe, uh, maybe blamed on supervisors and regulators, but much of it is in the market, uh, led to property and consumption bubbles. And finally, uh, incomplete economic governance is also to be, to be partly blamed for this accumulation of imbalances. True fiscal rules were not properly enforced. Structural reforms were not properly implemented. A statistical systems reliability was not uh, sufficiently enforced. And crisis management mechanisms were, uh, were not given priority and were postponed. So these were the main problems that, uh, uh, lie, that underlie the, uh, the situation where we are now. Now, how will uh, how will we come strengthened? So how, what is the, road, uh, the roadmap for fixing those problems? Well, it comes under four legs, uh, four strands. One clearly is crisis management. Uh, 
and the, uh, the mechanisms were put in place. Initially, it was thought that uh, with bilateral loans to Greece, the problem could be solved. Later, it was seen that the problem expanded. And therefore, the, uh, the, the first the EFSF uh, was uh, put in place, thinking that it would be enough to, to have a, 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 a temporary facility. It was seen that it was not the case. Therefore, a more permanent one was agreed. And of course, uh, the IMF, as multilateral institution, was also uh, asked to play its role uh, in order to solve this systemic and global problem, or a problem that was, uh, for, for this time, uh, the, whose epicenter was in the European Union, but that uh, was, uh, was the consequence also partly of the global crisis and could also become a, a one more step in another global crisis. So at the same time, we, uh, we addressed the issues with the financial sector, with fin more financial stability mechanisms, uh, the European systemic risk board, the systemic risk had been neglected as much in, the, in Europe as in the US and other, uh, and, and other advanced countries. Uh, the uh, uh, European supervisory uh, architecture that was very much uh, country-based uh, was given more of, a, uh, of an integrated approach because the, the financial sector became more integrated, therefore the regulator uh, regulators and supervisors had to be also more integrated across countries. And the regulatory framework that was in 40 and the G20 agreed that uh, had to be amended uh, was also given a special attention. Uh, thirdly, and uh, very importantly, uh, it was agreed that uh, uh, growth enhancing reforms had to be effected. Uh, because it's fine uh, to, to address crisis, it's fine, it's fine to address uh, financial, uh, fiscal stability, but eventually uh, the capacity to reimburse will come from certainly some discipline, but also the, 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 the income uh, generated uh, that, will, uh, that will give uh, the, the, uh, uh, the revenue uh, to, uh, to reimburse the debt. So for that, uh, clearly, uh, the, the priority was put on national governments to, to, uh, to unlock the growth potential that was retarded or constrained by uh, too many rigidities, and then supplement that with uh, act action at uh, EU level. And finally, as I said, the, the final element, the crisis uh, management mechanisms and other governance instruments that were lacking uh, were also, uh, uh, were also um, put in place or are, are being put in place so as to uh, fill the gaps that, uh, uh, that uh, were to some extent a part of the problem. So this led to a process of uh, fast forward towards uh, more integration because the, of the realization that the EU economy had become so integrated that national policies by themselves were not uh, able uh, to cope with the, uh, with the problems uh, uh, resulting from integration. Integration had brought a number of benefits, but also had some, some uh, problems that if, we're, if they were not tackled properly, uh, could lead to, much of the pro to many of the problems that we have seen. So I will not uh, 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 dwell on, on the uh, number of uh, measures that were uh, put in place. As, uh, as I said, the, uh, the uh, firewalls, uh, but also the uh, measures to improve uh, uh, growth potential. And those uh, led, uh, and, and this process was, uh, took some time. Why? Because, uh, and this is also part of the answer to some of the, uh, of the uh, uh, statements made earlier, this process was one of building trust. 
the crisis led to a, uh, a situation of mistrust between countries that, uh, uh, that had gone uh, through, uh, uh, that had made, had made ma many errors in, uh, uh, had, made, had made many policy errors and that were ready to undergo uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, to, to endure the, the uh, strains uh, to, uh, to catch up and to come uh, to a, a more sustainable solution. But uh, at the same time, let's, uh, let's face it, the, uh, uh, being part of the, of the euro, euro area and, uh, uh, and also the, uh, of the EU uh, brought significant, uh, huge benefits to other countries. Uh, therefore, it is natural that this solidarity uh, is, uh, is also activated. So, but in order, if we, if we go to, to the other side, uh, to the countries that had run uh, thrifty policies or sound policies for, for a number of years, uh, it was natural that they, that they uh, want some guarantees that, uh, as uh, was put earlier, uh, good money doesn't go after, the, uh, after bad money, and therefore that the, that the uh, guarantees or, or, the, or the loans that were, uh, that were granted to these countries in difficulties were matched by responsibility on, on the part of those countries. So that uh, with responsibility on the one hand and solidarity, we could bring back the confidence uh, so as to have a win-win solution for both types of countries. And this uh, indeed uh, uh, took some time and, 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 and took a number of iterations that uh, we are seeing uh, today as, uh, or early today, uh, uh, led to the uh, agreement on this uh, uh, assistance package for Greece. So, but as I said, in order to, to ensure and to provide assurance uh, to uh, those countries that, uh, that were uh, putting forward the money, uh, we, we needed to, uh, to, to, to ensure and, and to, uh, to have the, uh, uh, the guarantees from the countries in distress that they, they were also taking the task and that they were also taking their uh, destiny uh, in, uh, in their hands, and that uh, the opportunities that they may have missed in the past uh, were not missed this time, and that the countries, the, the economies were put on, on, the right, on the right track, and the, uh, and the societies in some cases uh, were also changed uh, into a, a more sustainable path. So, uh, and, and this is also part of the response to the issue of moral hazard. Uh, it is... It is hard to believe that uh, uh, countries will follow the example of Greece or even Portugal, uh, given the, uh, the strains and, and the, uh, and the uh, extremely difficult uh, uh, me measures that uh, these governments are taking right now. So the, the reductions in, in wages, reduction in pensions, is not a recipe that uh, uh, will lead other countries to follow this example. So the moral hazard in this respect is very much constrained by the fact that uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the costs of the wrong policies are being seen now and certainly are not something that people are longing for, people on, in other countries are longing for. So as I said, this, these measures are, are complemented in national uh, in the national sphere by aggressive and, uh, and, uh, and uh, ambitious and, and, and really uh, responsible uh, programs. For instance, in Spain announced uh, some economic policy measures, notably to f fight the grey economy, reduce the number of public entities that indeed had proliferated, especially at the, the regional and, and lower uh, levels of government, 
introduce ex-ante budgetary controls, remove rigidities in labor contracts and markets so as to free the po growth potential that these countries have. The same in Italy, on 20th of January, a reform package was agreed by this government, which brought more competition to liberal professions that enjoyed uh, undue privileges, unbundling uh, gas generation and distribution to introduce more competition, just, this is just one example, to bring more market into the economy. Uh, introduce labor reforms to reduce segmentation, so the, the protection, the overprotection of uh, uh, those uh, uh, workers already having a job and the underprotection of those uh, not having jobs. Uh, moving the retirement age to 67, 67 years in line with demography, and uh, correcting social protection mechanisms in line with uh, flex security, which is centered on the worker rather than on the job. So this, uh, it is estimated that uh, the, uh, by the OECD and the Bank of Italy that increasing the, the competition in the service sector, as is being done now in, in Italy, will boost growth by 11% in the long run, and half of this will come in the, in the next uh, uh, three years. So uh, one, I have heard today and I, I hear uh, sometimes that these plans are not feasible, that, uh, that uh, Greece and other countries will eventually not, uh, not follow the plans and, and will, will default. Well, sorry, but uh, uh, there are precedents uh, within the Union of uh, countries having gone through those types of measures and they have been successful. And as I said, uh, it is now the, the, uh, the uh, uh, understanding and the acknowledgement of the, of the Greek population that uh, this is the opportunity to really bring, uh, bring Greece back into Europe, bring Greece back into sustainable pace, and, uh, and they, uh, they will not uh, miss this opportunity. So uh, these measures, have, as I said, measures on innovation, measures on improving business climate, on modernizing social welfare, on greening and growing, are, uh, have been affected in other countries and can also bear fruit in, in the countries in the south. So now I heard that uh, uh, this, was, this will not be supported by the, by the public opinion. Well, this is not what we see. Uh, a poll of uh, 26,000 uh, citizens in 27 member states uh, late in, in the autumn, uh, when they, they were asked uh, who can best deal with the crisis, the answer was the European, Union, the European Union first, followed by national governments. Uh, so the, the people realized that with uh, problems that uh, go beyond their own countries, it's only at, uh, uh, through uh, the European Union, so th through uh, a, uh, a cross-country approach that th they will be solved. So true, I mean, there may be some de decline in the support uh, to the European in Union, but uh, if, uh, if you look at the decline in the support to national governments and to national parliaments, this is even, even higher. So the European Union, again, is seen as the best option for solving these problems. So, so to conclude, uh, European integration has, has brought unprecedented prosperity and convergence. True, it was not a substitute for good policies, and its governance structure was incomplete, and the crisis exacerbated these imbalances, but uh, the roadmap to, 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 to correct these deficiencies and gaps has been addressed. Uh, it involves fast-forward integration and national plans. 
it is, it is feasible and supported. So, as a consequence, European integration, the European Union, and the model that gave prosperity and convergence uh, to all countries in the Union will come out stronger from the crisis. If you allow me now uh, one and a half minutes to, to address a couple of points that were put by my predecessors. So, on the issue of whether does anyone believe Greek, Greece will work, yes. And the, 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 uh, the reason, as I said, is that uh, uh, the, uh, the other options are, are much worse, and this has been uh, clearly the debate in, in Greece uh, lately. So uh, going out of the euro doesn't solve anything, uh, and I'm sorry. Uh, it will not solve the, the, the fiscal problem. It will not solve the competitiveness problem. Uh, the, the solutions that are put in place are the win-win both for Greece and for the other countries. So on the issue of... Uh, the, the famous Kissinger, Kissinger question, who answers the euphone? The answer is now very clear. If, if you want a Minister of, of Foreign Affairs at the EU level, it's Mrs. Ashton. If you want a, uh, someone at the President level, it's Mr. Van Rompuy. So, uh, as I said, the EU public increasingly skeptical. I'm sorry, but this is not what polls show. There may be, of course, and there, there is frustration. Of course, when one is cut by 20%, by 25%, uh, it's uh, uh, his or, or her salary. I mean, they are not happy. And there is, uh, there is legitimate uh, uh, protest. But in the end, uh, they realize that uh, they, they lived above their means for a number of years. And now they, they, they must go back to reality. And the best way is to, to go back to, uh, to work, to, to competitiveness, and to remove uh, the, the rents that uh, many have benefited from for a number of years. So EU democracy, uh, EU, the EU was never meant to be a nation state, I'm sorry. So if you have the benchmark as a nation state, it will not work. So uh, no allegiance to the EU, I'm sorry again, but uh, you have, uh, you, you may, uh, uh, I mean, uh, travel around the, the, the EU and many countries, have, as I said, feel the EU as the, as the best solution to their problems when, the, when their problems be, be, go beyond their own national boundaries. And there are many of these problems that go be, beyond national boundaries. So about the democracy of the, uh, of the EU, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the treaties ha have been ratified by all countries through either through parliaments or through pa referenda according to their national provisions. So I don't see any problem of uh, democracy there. The European Parliament is, is, uh, is elected democratically. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, if there is an, a, a, a national component, well, this is again natural. It's a composition of, uh, of party allegiance and, uh, and national, uh, na national origins. And uh, something just to finish uh, that uh, I couldn't uh, believe my ears when I, when I heard earlier on this, this morning, uh, comparing the EU with the Comic-Con is a complete insult to intelligence. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, uh, were, you, uh, were voters, I mean, were citizens allowed to vote whether they went, they, they became part of the Comic-Con? Was, was there any invasion by European uh, uh, armies into the country? I'm sorry, but uh, I, I, frankly, this is uh, something that uh, needs some correction. So I could go on, but uh, I, I, I'm aware that uh, my time uh, was elapsed. Thank you very much. Thank you.